It's the tip of the spear in the epic battle to defend the United States of America. The National Security Hour exposes the wolves in sheep's clothing and their nefarious plots to undermine and destroy U.S. national security. Welcome to the National Security Hour. This is the America Out Loud Talk Radio Network, and I'm Ed Huglin, your host. On today's program, we are privileged and honored to be joined by best-selling author, Mr. Michael Walsh, as part of my ongoing American Patriot series. The American Patriot series is intended to bring to you, our audience, examples of everyday Americans who you may not have heard about, but who live the American dream, exemplify the impact, impact that one individual can have on their fellow Americans in the world, and are true American patriots. Mr. Walsh is a true American patriot and a journalist, screenwriter, and best-selling author of 16 books, whose work includes six novels, 10 works of nonfiction, and a hit Disney movie, two New York Times bestsellers as well. As our audience knows, I focus on strategic issues and cognitive warfare, which is the simplest definition can be defined as a battle between good and evil. This is an ongoing cognitive war occurring both globally and domestic. It is a war which has been ongoing for millennia or more and which will continue as long as mankind exists. Knowing my interest in cognitive war and my work in this field, a friend of mine, Josh Steinman, recommended a book to me while I was serving as an executive in the intelligence community, the book, The Devil's Pleasure Palace. When I read the book, I kicked myself for not having taken the time to read it sooner, as this book brings together an exceptional and truly unique blend of history, theology, and ideology to help us understand this war. In this book, one finds a treasured trove of history with an exceptional laydown of the left's radical progressives foundation in Europe. It spread to America and a wonderful blend of culture and art as examples in providing a truly eloquent description of the ongoing battle between good and evil and what it means for America and freedom. Today, we will discuss The Devil's Pleasure Palace with its author, Mr. Michael Walsh, and cover three main areas. Why he wrote the book in his context, some going into his background and history to understand what makes this American patriot tick. And we'll close by returning to the book and talk about his future works as well. As I turn this over to our guest, Mr. Michael Walsh, let me start by asking him. Michael, you opened the book by stating The Devil's Pleasure Palace is a book about good and evil, about the fall of man and our long journey home, and about how art, not science, is the medium best suited to steer us toward that beacon of magic fire which lights the path to redemption. What what drove you, what inspired you to write this magnificent book? That's a good question, Ed. And in, in all the times I've talked about this book, which has become so influential over the course of the last seven or eight years, uh, I've never actually answered that question. And I think I can do it by telling a story, which is goes like this. I I was at a church, um, which is a very, very conservative, Catholic, free, trident, tridentine right, pre-Vatican II, uh, private church in California, which is uh, open only to very few people. Uh, and the man who established uh, this, built the building and uh, brought our community together uh, 
had heard that I had lost my younger daughter to a mysterious and tragic death when she was 22 years old. And I was in need of great solace. And so this man is quite famous, by the way, and I won't mention his name, reached out to me and uh, invited me to come. And as I was attending mass there fairly regularly while I was living in Los Angeles, um, something struck me about the Apostles' Creed, which this line that, not the Nicene Creed, but the Apostles' Creed, which we learn as kids in Catholic school, uh, that Christ died and descended into hell and then now sits at heaven at the right hand of the Father. The line descended into hell struck me. And, you know, with writers, it's it's just a question of which random things in your brain come together. Uh, and I combined that with the title of an obscure, unfinished opera by Schubert that he wrote when he was about 15 years old called The Devil's Pleasure Palace. And those two things kind of collided in my head. And I started thinking about what does that mean he descended into hell? Why did he do that? Why did he go there? What happened? Did he let people out? What, did they want him to stay? I just, you know, as a screenwriter and a novelist, you begin to extrapolate all kinds of interesting possibilities, as you do when you're writing with your partner or you're in a story meeting with your producers and you start spitballing and saying, well, what if this and what if that? All movies start with what if. So what if what? What happened? And that's the origin of Devil's Pleasure Palace, oddly enough. And then I started thinking about uh, a book about good and evil and about Manichaeistic philosophy and a lot of things like that. And I brought it to the attention of my friend Roger Kimball, who is the publisher of Encounter Books, very distinguished author in his own right and editor. And he said, this sounds great, but what's the policy angle? Because Encounter is really a conservative political imprint that addresses lots of policy things. And I said, it's the Frankfurt School, the school of Marxist philosophers who came to the United States uh, fleeing Hitler in Germany in the 30s and, and 40s, and then wound up uh, poisoning the well of academia here in the U.S. And so I'm uh, 73 and a half now, which I went to college when I was 17. And that was the heyday of Marcuse and Herbert Marcuse and Marcuse's philosophy. And again, this all came together, good and evil. Uh, what does it mean? <clears throat> so I, it's a very idiosyncratic book. I, I, I don't say this with any boasting, but I think I was probably the only person who could write it because I'm the only person who's interested in all these random collection of things that, as I say, came together in my head. It's, it's, it's a book about life, I think. And, I got so involved in it that uh, it was it was luckily successful when it came out. My editor there, uh, Roger Kimball, I mentioned, said to me when he read the first manuscript, he said, well, this is either going to be a sensation or it's going to be a complete failure. And I said, well, I'll, I'll root for choice number one. <laughs> and so after uh, Devil became so uh, influential, I, I wrote a second book, uh, a sequel to it, a companion piece, really called The Fiery Angel, uh, which is kind of the antidote to the pessimism of the devil. And it shows us how we can redeem ourselves and understand the world better through the medium of art. 
this is a big issue with me. I think science has overwhelmed artists in the 20th and 21st centuries, and it offers no other explanation but its own. But as I like to tell people, science can explain things about the physical universe and ourselves physiologically. But artists talk about our souls, and they get inside us in a way that science, it, it can't, because it can't go there, and it doesn't even know this world exists. And I think to, in order to have a balanced world, you have to have both. And when one becomes too strong, you get superstition and craziness and excess. That would be the artist's side. And the other gets too strong, you have this bloodless technocratic society of the World Economic Forum and you know, various other James Bond villains that are trying to control everything that we do. So I, I threw this out there in 2015, and and here we are. Well, that's it's fantastic. I've never sort of heard about your daughter, but what an inspiration to, to write such a fabulous book. And as you talk about the balance between science and art, you know, people tend to forget science is not uh, – definitive science changes with time as more facts come out as we learned under COVID and such. Well, I was just about to say, as we learned under COVID, yes, and Dr. Science Fauci himself was one of the greatest charlatans and evil men in the, in the, in the history of this century so far, for sure. Oh, absolutely. And that's why, you know, this book, I think is very important for our listeners to, to get a hold of and read if you haven't. Because a key focus of this radio program and the reason I'm on here is to highlight the ongoing cognitive war, the good versus evil, and help Americans to understand the origins, the tactics, and the techniques of the evil we face. You address this throughout your book in a very eloquent manner and organized manner. As you open your argument in book, we start in hell appropriately. Mm. Please help us understand, as you already mentioned, the importance of the Frankfurt School and the difference between the hard left radicals like Solinsky, Gramsci, and others versus the garden variety liberals that we call, you know, our fellow Democrats or what used to be our fellow Democrats, but which has now been hijacked. Are they, how, how do they leverage art to advance their evil? You know, I think when you talk about the Frankfurt School, you talk about a very specific time and place. Uh, they are really the last excrescence of the 19th century. Uh, I remember when I was back at college at the Eastman School of Music in Rochester, New York, where I went, our French teacher in 1968, when there were all the student riots in Paris, uh, and of course this came up in French class as we were learning the language, he said to us, I was too young to understand what he meant, but he said, you're all the bastard children of Rousseau. And that phrase has stuck with me for 50 years now or more. Uh, that the Rousseauian notion of you know man is born free but everywhere in chains, the great opening line, you got to hand it to him for that. That's as good as call me Ishmael. Um, that we are born free but we, we live in, in, in chains and we must unchain ourselves from this arbitrary and uh, malevolent structure that we find ourselves in. And I think the, the Frankfurt School Marxists really come out of that without Rousseau, there's no Marx and without Marx, there's no Frankfurt school. And they are a cult um, in a way of science. They were all very much devoted to a kind of scientific scientific if there's such a word, 
you know, uh, regarding sex and regarding relationships and regarding the apprehension of the world. Uh, music of, of Theodore Adorno, who is one of the Frankfurt School Marxists, was also a very well-known music critic. Very bad music critic, I might add, as a former music critic myself. Uh, but nonetheless, he brought that same kind of dissecting attitude towards the culture. And they ruined it for everybody, but they ruined it on purpose. And I think today's Democrats are fairly stupid people, and they operate emotionally. But the Frankfurt School was a different level of malevolence, and they have been so terribly influential. And when I wrote this particular book, Devil, a lot of my friends said to me, oh, are you trying to tell us that a bunch of crazy, crazy professors with Dr. Strangelove accents actually meant this? And I said, yes, I, I, I believe that to be true. And I think subsequent history has certainly borne this out, that for the left, and I'm sure you talked about this on your show, there is no limiting principle for the left. Too much cannot be enough, ever. So they will go until they are stopped because they will not stop on their own. And if we don't stop them by any means necessary, as they like to say, that's how they look at us, yes. then we will lose. So what I've tried to do in this book and in Devil's Plush, uh, in the Fiery Angel and subsequently in my book Last Stands, which is about the vet masculine virtues of heroism in combat, uh, and even in my most recent collection of essays, Against the Great Reset, that's an attack by a bunch of distinguished uh, center-right intellectuals on the World Economic Forum. We have to sound the alarm and we have to fight back. And that's that's all you can do. I, I was just reading some comments on a piece I posted on my website, mm -hmm. thepipeline.org, which is an anti-environmentalism uh, uh, website. And... I get this every now and then. Okay, Wallace, well, now you've written another thing, but what are you going to do about it? Well, I'm going to do nothing about it because my skill set is telling you about it and is analyzing it so you, you moron, can understand what I'm talking <laughs> about. Uh, I'm, I'm not going to pick up a rifle and start the revolution at my age. I'm way past that. But all guys of my age, your age, uh, 60s kids, all we can do is pass along, if we live long enough, what we've learned over the course of these several decades. Yeah, but so that's exceptionally important. And, and I'm glad you brought that up because it's part of the American Patriot series is everybody has an impact and everybody can have an impact, but you can't have an impact if you sit on your duff. You no. have to you have to get up and do something. And so part of what you're talking about here with, with the radical left, the progressive left is they have no balance, as you mentioned. And and so they use their leader, Satan, the father of lies, in this fight. But why is it that so many people buy into their lies and continue to fail to realize that this is ongoing battle is just not normal politics, but it's actually a blood sport for absolute power, a true battle well, between good and evil. But people don't think, recognize that. I think the reason people fall for it is that... Uh, I, I make this point in devil quite a bit. If Satan doesn't come to you with fire and brimstone and scaring the bejesus out of you. He comes as your friend. And what he's saying to a lot of weak-minded people, uh, it's not your fault. Anything that's happened to you is not your fault. It's the fault of those other guys over there. They get uh, people to hate their own fellow countrymen. 
because they become convinced that the that the the side that isn't doing anything. This is really important to understand. Conservatives are always on their back foot because we don't go out and aggressively try to change things. They're always push, push, push. They're the kid in the back of the class that's hitting you with spitballs, right? And when you complain, the teacher smacks you. They're that guy. So they tell people, it's it's not your fault. Just listen to us. We'll show you the way, which is hate. And then that's why they like to criminalize hate speech, too. <laughs> Very appropriately so. There's a great point there, because that's exactly what they do. The Orwellian nature of their discussions and such. But we're going to have to take a break here. And but when we come back from break, we'll talk a little bit more about the book. And then we're going to go a little into Michael's background. For our listeners, American Out Loud Talk Radio plays on iHeartRadio Network. You can also listen to us on a media player from any web browser anywhere in the world. We have the best in class applications available on Apple, Android and Alexa, where we stream 24 by 7. And now you can also hear them on the podcast as those same apps. Go to AmericaOutloud.com to get the details. That's AmericanOutloud.com. We'll be right back. Trouble concentrating or recalling information is frustrating, embarrassing, and kills productivity. Nutrition company Healthy Cell created Focus and Recall to boost your brain power. And unlike other supplements that don't work, Focus and Recall is not a pill. It's a gel you swallow with ultra-absorption of science-backed ingredients to help you immediately sharpen focus and strengthen recall. Go to HealthyCell.com and use limited time code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first order, risk-free. Love it or your money back, guaranteed. HealthyCell.com, code OUTLOUD. The pandemic may be over for some, but millions of Americans are needlessly suffering from the long-term effects of toxic spike protein from COVID-19 and the vaccines. Fortunately, Dr. Peter McCullough and his team at the Wellness Company designed their spike support formula with the miracle enzyme natokinase, scientifically studied to dissolve spike protein so you can feel your very best. Go to OutloudCare.com today and use code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first order. Hello, I'm Ben Marble, MD, and I founded MyFreeDoctor.com as a donation-supported, faith-based nonprofit with a mission to save lives by delivering free doctor visits to patients in all 50 states of America. MyFreeDoctor.com treats a broad range of health concerns like COVID-19, long COVID, sinus infections, urinary tract infections, rashes, medication refills, and more. So please visit MyFreeDoctor.com, where we're healing America one person at a time. Welcome back to the National Security Hour. This is Ed Hugland, your host today. On with me is author Michael Walsh, best-selling author, and we're talking about the Devil's Pleasure Palace. As we were going on break, we were talking about the Frankfurt School and you know what what drives the radical left and why they're so evil. You know, and and uh, both uh, Michael and I experienced in the Cold War uh, going behind the Iron Curtain. In the old, uh, I'm an old Soviet studies guy, and I was in the Air Force when I went behind uh, the curtain. Uh, what the West has experienced since the end of the Second World War, Michael wrote, has been the erection of a modern-day devil's pleasure palace, a Potemkin village, built on promises of social justice and equality for all, on visions of a world that lasts divorced from a toil and seat where man and woman is guaranteed a living, a world without hunger or fear or racism or sexism. It is the world promised us by critical theory. So, Michael, why is it? that the same old tactics and techniques of deception are so effectively employed today by the radical left 
the same that they were deployed a hundred years ago? Um, I think it's uh, uh, because people never change. I, I figured this out over the course of the last two books I, I've written. I wrote a book, as I mentioned earlier, called Last Stands. It's subtitles, Why Men Fight When All Is Lost. And it's an examination of famous last stand battles, some not that famous, uh, throughout history. What does it teach us uh, about uh, masculine nature and, and a male's role in society? I, I should mention that my father, who just turned 97, uh, is uh, a member of the Chosen Few. He was at the Chosen Reservoir with the 2-5 uh, in Thanksgiving of 1950 when the Chinese uh, counterattacked and had to fight his way out. And as I was writing Last Stands, I said, geez, you know, my, my old man actually was in a last stand and, and what it was like. So the last chapter of that book allows him to tell his whole story, first-person narrative, uh, which he'd never talked about when I was growing up. Uh, to the reader, and I, I think you learn a lot. But what I learned from Last Stands is that now I'm involved in a book called A Rage to Live, A Time to Die, which is about pivotal, epical battles in which the entire history of the Earth changes almost overnight. Uh, a good example of that is the Battle of the Milvian Bridge, which very few people have heard about, but that's where Constantine defeats Maxentius, becomes eventually the sole empire and legalizes christianity so with that one that was the end of the roman gods really at that bridge north of rome and as i go through these battles i i keep coming back to points that i make is okay so here's caesar at alicia where he's fighting Vercingetorix, and here's bohemond at antioch where he's undergoing the siege of, of antioch and both men find themselves in exactly the same situation that is they're besieging someone and someone else is coming up behind them besieging them and so what have we learned from the how did caesar handle it did would bohemond have known what caesar did at alicia maybe maybe not i mean we're talking 1097 here now mm -hmm. uh but what you realize that human nature is always putting itself in the same situation over and over again it's a little bit like a novel i'm very fond of uh uh, uh, oops, God, here, I can't think of the name of it right now, uh, by David Mitchell, Cloud Atlas, which is about eternal recurrence. Um, and I, I think what happens is we just keep falling into the same trap, but we Santayana's right about this. We refuse to learn from history. And now that we don't teach history anymore, our young people have no clue about anything, just anything. They have never heard of anything except fixation on all these absurd things that the left proposes, now including this transsexual, transparently stupid, immoral mania they foisted upon the country. And just when you think they can't get more ridiculous, the idea that a man can become a woman or a woman can become a man has got to be rock bottom, but you know they'll get even more ridiculous as we go forward. Yeah, and so your point is very spot on in terms of repeating history. You know, those who fail to learn from history are doomed to repeat it. And we're seeing that in, in spades here. You know, the Naked Communists, uh, written uh, 60 years ago, highlights the specific goals of communism at that time. And it's all leading not to communism, but basically control and absolute power. And a key part of your book is, is the thesis, which speaks to a portion of this, which is targeting the family. 
you know, please help us understand the importance mm. of this targeting because it goes back to this transgenderism you're talking about here. Because over the last six decades, we've seen the effective targeting and absolute destruction of not only American black families, but the family as a whole as the radical left continues to chip away at the rest of the family structure with drag queen shows, the pedophilia, the grooming, and the normalization of a mental illness of 0.2% of the population, transgenderism, as being something far more than it is. What are, you, what are your thoughts on that that aspect? Well, I think this is a, is a hill to die on as far as the culture is concerned, because uh, the communists were only one in a many long series of of people who despise the nuclear family and have decided there's got to be a better way of organizing human civilization. Remember, everything that's to a leftist, everything in the past is wrong and evil and stupid. And it not only needs to be corrected, but it needs to be expunged from the history books. So people who know communism, Soviet communism, will know about Mr. Morozov, who may or may not have actually informed on his parents and then, you know, had them arrested by the Czechists or whoever was running the KGB in those days and had them executed because they were speaking out against the state. Well, I also, this is a little bit controversial, but, you know, I've come this far. I might as well go all the way. I think feminism has really helped to destroy the West. I think it was a terrible idea. I think the introduction of women into the workforce in the 70s was lethal, as it turned out, because it's given both men and women a very wrong idea of what the relationship of the sexes should be. So obviously it's a whole long conversation about that. But women tend to be fascists. And I say this uh, without any particular judgment. They tend to be collectivists. They tend to think about the group that what's best for the group, they are innate. I'm a great follower of Camille Polyus, so I'm sort of a Polyan on this one. Mm-hmm. That they, they are defensive, protective, frightened all the time because of the physical disparity. And one way you see how they're trying to get women to uh, stop being like that or thinking like that is in Hollywood now where a 98-pound woman can kick the ass of a 260-pound Navy SEAL with just one blow. He, he'll fall down as she mows her way it, it's of course it's comic and and you 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 see the tragedy of these young women like getting in the boxing ring with with transsexual female boxers and having their jaws smashed and yes being hit so hard and then you look at someone like the the, the soccer team you know that so complaining about well we don't get paid enough well first of all no one wants to pay to see you that's why you don't get paid enough but then they go out and play a high school team, got clobbered by a boys' high school team. So this disparity, this gulf between reality and their fantasy of what ought to be is really, really bad. And as I think about what ought to be, I spent many years in Germany, almost 10. My children were raised there, in fact. Uh, the Germans have a peculiar way of thinking. I think it's partly because of the language I'm a, language scholar and because german puts the verb at the end of the sentence way down the road uh it's very hard to tell a joke in german because it's the the, the the sentence is predestined like a calvinist uh as as you're talking but they have a great mental problem of thinking that if it should not happen it will not happen and the best example of that is when you're driving on the autobahn and it gets very foggy in various parts of germany yeah. and no one slows down 
they just crash right into the there's a there's a pile up and then suddenly you have an 80 90 to 100 far pile up it's called a carambolage in german uh on the autobahn and because it, it didn't occur to them to slow down just because this because this you know it's unbegrenzt it's a no speed limit or even whatever the posted sign is they never adapt for conditions that may explain why they lost World War II at Stalingrad. Well, there you go. <laughs> well, well, that's very interesting because I was stationed in Germany a couple of years there at Wiesbaden, and, mm. and so I can I can uh, reflect on exactly what you're saying from my own experience here. As I, yeah. I traveled 130 miles an hour down the autobahn, and then when fog and stuff came, I slowed down. But I watched, as you said, those massive crashes occur occur ahead yeah. of me. Nobody else slowed down. I guarantee you that. Uh, it's a listen. It's a lovely country. I I, yes. I spent yeah. a lot of time in East Germany. I went for the first time in 1985, uh, and I was freezing my tush off in February of 1985 at a 40th anniversary commemoration of the firebombing of Dresden. So everybody was there, <clears throat> including, of course, Eric Honecker, who gave a very long speech as we were all standing outside. It was about 30 below zero, I think, at that point. It can get very cold in Central Europe, yeah. as the 101st found out at the Bulge. And but there we were, freezing our rear ends off. But a lot of the communist brass was there. And I think that uh, Mr. Putin himself was there. He was the brand-new resident or counter-resident, so to speak, uh, in Dresden at that time. He speaks very good German, by the way, whenever I hear him. He speaks better German than your average Russian because they have a very thick Slavic accent to their yes. German, but who well, doesn't? Well, very interesting. So I want to I switch topics for a little bit here and talk about yeah. you because uh, as part of this American Patriot series, I like to highlight folks like you who are not only very successful but have a large impact and, and uh, in terms of your background and stuff. So looking at the book and reading through the book, as I mentioned to my friend Josh, I said, well, this guy must uh, be a theologian, historian, and a variety of other stuff because he covers so much ground. So give us some insight to your background and education. And, and obviously you've mastered many areas over this years, uh, but but uh, talk to us about that a little bit to have us understand, you know, how did you get to where you're at? Well, uh, you know, I'm a little bit uh, un unusual in the sense that uh, I grew up in the Marine Corps. I was born in Camp Lejeune, North Carolina, in fact. Uh, I'm wearing my Camp Lejeune t-shirt right now. It's, uh, in honor of that fact, um, my dad was a Marine Corps officer. He went to Korea in 1950. He landed uh, at Pusan first and was involved in the Battle of the Pusan Perimeter. Then MacArthur yanked them all out. They went around the other end and landed at Incheon. So he was a veteran of the Incheon landing. And then they fought their way up through Seoul two or three times. There were several battles of Seoul. And he wound up uh, with the 2-5, which is the most decorated unit in the Marine Corps' history uh, at the Chosen Reservoir, and fought his way back out of that and came home, fathered four more children. So we grew up all over the place, San Diego, California, Honolulu, Hawaii, Washington, D.C., a couple of times. Uh, but I was uh, less interested in that kind of career. I was kind of a precocious child, so I zip through grade school very quickly and uh, wound up uh, as a National Merit Scholar winner in 1967. And I chose to go to the Eastman School of Music, an odd choice one might think. Uh, but I'm also a pianist, a concert 
level pianist used to be at one point and i wanted to study music and i wanted to study all the things that weren't the marine corps and the military which i had grown up in and so i did and i was very glad i, I went to eastman it was a wonderful school um you learned languages and history and art and culture and you read why we had wonderful english professor who just changed my life she made us read everything on the planet and uh i just sucked it all up i'm i'm I really enjoy that. So even today, I I spend my days editing my website and then writing my new battles book. And I just got a lovely, fully restored 1908 Steinway concert grand, uh, the largest grand piano they made for the house back at the turn of the last century. So I'm preparing to give uh, some house concerts on that instrument in the fall. Uh, Just whatever interests me, interests me. And so it stays in my head. I can't remember what I did two days ago, but I remember just about every word I've ever read. So <laughs> well, that's, that's, that's how it happened. No, that's that's fantastic. So we're going to come back to your father here in a second. But but you note in the dedication to your book, a very loving reference to your mother. Stating yes. For Anne Patricia Walsh, my mother who taught me to love words. Would you please expand on this dedication as your mother, no doubt, uh, with exceptional her love and care and support for you, but she obviously had an effect in terms of your love for reading and the arts. Yeah, she did. For, somehow I managed to learn to read on my own when I was about two. And uh, she uh, she is a, a Boston Irish girl, like my dad's Boston Irish boy, and had been abandoned by her father when she was a young girl, or six, uh, six or seven of them in the family. And they grew up very, very poor. Uh, but she, I think, went to a, a semester of college. Somehow she managed to do that and was a great fan of poetry. She loved Emily Dickinson, for example. And she would read to me constantly. So I remember reading as early as certainly as four or five as a boy growing up in, in San Diego. And she just turned me on to books. And I think I think that he she died a few a few years ago at the age of 91. I think he always thought, you know, you've ruined my son. I wanted another Marine Corps officer in the family. And now you've given me this pansy who plays the piano <laughs> and reads books in the corner all day long. But I, I hope he's I hope he's proud of me now. I think he is. I dedicated the uh, last dance book. Uh, the last chapter, obviously, is his story. So, Well, well obviously, you know, the, the what you're highlighting, at least from my perspective, is not only the importance of teachers, good teachers, not not what I tell these teachers union teachers I have today, but right. teachers who actually look to educate and also the importance of family guidance here. But but coming back to your father, you know, mm. as, as you write in Last Dance about his, you must, you, you, you care, obviously you carry, um, you, you care a great deal about America in our freedoms in this battle of good versus evil. And so your father no doubt had an impact and and you mentioned that he didn't really say much about the, the last stands aspect that you write about in Chosen Reservoir until way, way late in life. So during his career and time, did that also have an influence you on in terms of American patriotism? Can you give us some insights there? No. Yeah, it's an interesting question. I think as we were Irish Catholic Marine Corps children, so we grew up being Marine Corps. That's the first thing. Catholic, yeah, maybe Catholic first, Marine Corps second, and Irish a kind of distant third. Uh, but in my own life, I 50 years ago, I went back to Ireland, rediscovered the family, and wound up acquiring my 
his grandmother's birthplace. So I've moved my whole family back to Ireland. My daughter married an Irishman. I have two Irish grandchildren. So we kind of did the immigrant thing, the full cycle, came over, made some money, went home. And, and I think they inspired me just through their example of how hard they worked. Well, no, so that's fantastic. But that that the, the aspect there, how hard work, the family, uh, the dedication. And, and as you mentioned, you know, the, the religion, the dedication to the service, and then your, your roots. And in, in no way there then did one detract from another. Well, today, the radical left tries to segment us in so many different ways to piece part us. And so when we come back from break, we're going to talk a little bit more about Michael and the Devil's Pleasure Palace, and then we're going to go into some of his other books, as he's already mentioned here. Just remember for our listeners that all of our shows go to podcasts typically a day after broadcast is here, heard here on talk radio. You can hear them on Spotify, Stitcher, Pandora, and iHeart Podcast, and many more. Also, uh, when this goes up to podcast, we'll post uh, different links for some of the aspects that Michael's touched on here today. So we'll be right back. America Out Loud beats to the pulse of our nation. We know when you're angry, you're troubled, confused, glad, and thankful. Well, we know you because we are you. AmericaOutloud.com. Join us as we explore the most important issues of our time. America Out Loud Talk Radio, the liberty and justice for all. If you're like me, you'd like life to return to some kind of normal. You're burned out on all the fear-mongering, but deep down you try and minimize viral exposure and your risk of getting sick. You've heard it talked about time and again by respected medical professionals. Use a pulvinone iodine nasal solution. I don't need to tell you just how powerful a nasal cleansing formula with xylitol, pulvinone iodine, and vitamin D3 for immune support could be. In fact, my attorney told me not to tell you. Google it and find out for yourself. Now, get yourself a bottle of American-made Cofix RX nasal solution. Let's get out and live again. CofixRx.com. That's C-O-F-I-X-R-X.com. Use coupon code OUTLOUD and get 20% off. Welcome back to the American Outlaw Talk Radio Network. This is the National Security Hour. I'm Ed Hugland, your host, and Michael Walsh, the author, best-selling author, is with us today talking about the Devil's Pleasure Palace. Now, Michael, we covered initially some aspects of the book uh, and also some of your background and your family history, which I think is very important for our listeners to understand. The key here is, as Michael pointed out, is that he was asked, well, what are you doing about it? Well, he writes and he explains things, much much like I'm doing here on this radio program, is bringing a level of awareness, insight, and understanding to our listeners so you can be aware and take appropriate action on your own. But as Michael pointed out, every one of us can take our own different actions because we have a specific niche, from my perspective, that I think is related to our destiny here. But as we return to the book here, in the chapter, A Descent to Hell, you write, Michael, sin is thus almost a parody of contemporary feminists and who fantasize about a world without men, who can ex- complain more than about men than sin, constantly impregnated without recourse, but fail to understand the practical consequences of such a world. And so you touched on this a little bit when you talk about feminism. 
And I'm sure that made a lot of the women listeners here very happy. But there's some important points that you brought out there in terms of feminism. And one of the things that, that, that I remember growing up in the 60s and 70s when this came out was all about these single mothers not having to have fathers. Well, how the hell has that worked out for you? Most of the single mothers live in poor and poverty conditions, whether they're black, white, whatever race. And the children grow up, many cases, dysfunctional and disadvantaged because they don't have the parenting of both parents, the guidance and other aspects. So how does the average American, Michael, fight back and communicate to address this descent into hell? Do we have the power, the means, the will to do so? What are your thoughts? Yeah, well, in, in that sentence, you just quoted that sin is with a capital S because sin is one of the offsprings of evil. And she is a character who is constantly impregnated, that is constantly bringing more evil into the world. So it's not... I don't mean the ladies are constantly impregnated, but I mean this character in Milton of, of sin. Oh, excellent. Okay, very good. See, I get to I learn think, more every day. <laughs> I think uh, thinking of Tacitus, uh, who wrote a book uh, about the Germans, the great Roman historian, and what the Romans were so impressed with by the Germans that they were battling uh, to a standstill. They remember they got their head handed to them at the. Uh, Battle of the Teutoburg Forest in 9 AD, when one of the Germans who had been raised as a Roman uh, basically betrayed them and led them into an ambush. The Germans had a very tight family structure. The Romans com comment on this all the time. The Romans were a little bit loose, as you know, uh, certainly in regards to what we would consider conventional sexual morality. But the Germans weren't, and they, they were uh, monogamous, they raised their children in a tight family group, uh, and, and even when they got beat by the Romans, they they never gave up their innate nature, and that's why the Romans never pushed really, why anything east of the Rhine never became part of the Roman Empire. Uh, so I think those values, they're not imposed by the Catholic Church. This is what I want to, my point. You know, Christianity comes much later than the Germans and the Romans, obviously. Uh it's an innate thing in human nature, but the uh, the devils and the demons of the Frankfurters, uh, the, the idea, like, well, let's get to the point of it. Critical theory means one thing, destroy. That's all it means. It doesn't mean fix. It means wreck. It is everything needs to be challenged, argued, criticized, and wrecked. Uh, and so they are purely a leftist destructive force. That's all the left can do is wreck. The Bolsheviks wrecked what was left of the sort of imperial Russia, and Russia went into a 75-year tailspin. We kept have to keep relearning this lesson over and over and over again. But the, tr the truth is in our nature. We just have to stop letting them bully us out of what we know in our hearts to be true. And that, as, again, that is not a sectarian or a partisan or a religious yes. idea. It's just a human idea. But, well, yes, it is. And it's, what's interesting to me is, you know, people see this. And, and I, I wrote a couple of different articles on this, you know, believe what you see. So when you see them destroying the family, when you see them destroying uh, sexual lines between children and adults, when you mm. see them destroying education to drive indoctrinization, uh, etc., you, and you see them weaponize our national security system against not just the former president, but against innocent parents and civilians calling them uh, extremists and calling them domestic terrorists, as Attorney General Garland has. 
it, 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 you have to start to wake up and realize this is not just some game. This is a real life battle between heaven and hell. Yes. Well, it's, it's the scene in uh, Rosemary's baby uh, where Rosemary's being, she's sort of drugged and she's lying naked on her back and she realizes she's being raped by the devil. That's the whole point of Rosemary's Baby from the Polanski movie from the 60s. And she says, this is no dream. This is really happening. She When she realizes that she's actually being impregnated by Satan. And, and I've, I've used that clip a lot to illustrate this point. At some point, we have to wake up and say, this is no dream. This is really happening. They are not going to stop ever. The only way you stop them is to stop them. That's it. And whatever means it takes to stop them is what means are going to have to be used. History shows this over and over and over again. I remember when I was in Russia, first time in 86, and I, I realized that everything I had been told about the Soviet Union was basically wrong. That it wasn't, they weren't 10 feet tall. They were kind of stupid. None of the technology worked. I was there with some CIA guys. And they said, well, you know, this is the other first, this is the other superpower, the other first world country. I said, You're are you stupid? Can you not look and see that this country is falling apart? That the apartment buildings literally start to collapse before they're finished, that no technology works, that no Russian in his right mind will get on a, an amusement park ride because it hasn't had any maintenance since Lenin was in high school. And the whole country was. Every woman was a whore. Every man could be bribed. Thank God for that. I bribed my way all over the place there. <laughs> there was no other way to get around. If you wanted anything, you had to learn how to play within the system. And it wasn't our system. It was their system. And it was doomed. And I came back and I said this to whoever needed to hear it. And they all laughed at me and said, ha, ha, ha. I went on the radio in 86, I think, after we came back. Uh, we went to the White House. Reagan hosted, hosted us. Mm -hmm. uh, and I was on the radio and I said, uh, this country's doomed. I said, Germany will be, re be reunited within five years. Well, I was way off. It was three, three years. You could see it. And yet, uh, this is my big criticism of the agency. If long got to this point, they were so married to their love affair with the KGB that they could not and would not see what was really happening. And I, I have very little use for the agency because I watched them operate for four or five years behind the lines, and they were horrible. They just wouldn't accept their own senses over their prejudices, and I think that's obviously a human failing. And, but no, no, very much was, is. And, and so, so you point out a couple of different things that are very important, I think, for the audience to understand. You know, so what you're hearing about how the radical left operates, it doesn't matter whether you're in China whether in Russia or the United States, it does the same thing. It puts, puts this false Potemkin village up ahead of time, destroys everything in its quest to keep absolute power, and everything's expendable. And when you take a look at in the United States today, you see this in all the radical left progressive cities. Here mm -hmm. the, Here's the cities who voted for the Democrats and progressives and the radicals to get in. But what are they doing to each of those cities? They're completely destroying those cities. Why? Because the anarchy and chaos it causes drives more fear, drives people to shut down. So this is part of the overall cognitive warfare aspect is they drive a mental fixation that causes people to shut down. 
And to your point, Michael, exactly with the CIA and the whole intelligence community, I've written on this several occasions, and and Josh and, and I've talked about this many times. It can, needs a complete overhaul. Why? Oh, yeah. Because they're fixated and stuck in the industrial age. They have no idea what's going on with China, which China is driving a massive cognitive war against the United States. The kinetic aspect is, is not the real threat. The cognitive is. And yet we sit here stupid spitting on our hands. I mean, the intelligence community has failed time and again with COVID-19. Did they give us a warning? No. no. Now you have 100,000 Americans dying from fentanyl each year because the radical left opens up the gates of hell and lists everyone across the border and drugs and child uh, child trafficking and everything. And mm-hmm. yet no one takes action. And this is where you know the, the footstop is for Congress and others. As Michael says, you can't stop them until you stop them. And so you have to take dramatic action. So I'm going to take a sidestep here. So one of the aspects I push is, for many of my perspectives here, these actions are treasonous. But yet Congress is looking at this stupid thing called impeachment versus treason. But treason can be uh, taken up in any state by any attorney general. It doesn't have to be a federal charge. Okay, from my understanding. But we have to take some sort of dramatic action here because, as you said, the left, radical left will roll on until they completely destroy this country. Any thoughts yeah. on that That side note? Well, yeah, I, I, I say to people, you know, Joe Biden's one of the worst people in the world. And, and if you've been around Congress like I have, uh, was is famous for being stupid, resentful, and mean. That, that whole, oh, Joe from Scranton thing, this guy is is fredo corleone he's so angry that everybody knows he's an idiot that he's now going to show us so i say they're just mooning us now that's all they're doing they they have no respect for us but getting back to this notion about power and force it's a wonderful line in oliver stone's movie uh, wall street where uh, what's his face so uh, charlie sheen asks michael douglas who's playing the bad guy uh why are you trying to wreck this company and and Douglas says because it's wreckable, okay, that's it. It's wreckable, and that's the left for you. That you know, I know Oliver meant that to be the rapacious capitalist, but it's really the voice of a rapacious communist because it's wreckable. And like any good communist, oh, I don't know, George Soros maybe, uh, I can make a lot of money off the wreckage of capitalism, and and they do. Speaking of Soros, I want to say this about him. I'll give him credit for this when. When I was there in the wreckage of Eastern Europe in 89, 90, Soros was the only person who went in there and he bought Eastern Europe for five cents on the dollar. And our government did absolutely nothing to help those people. I'm still angry about this. Uh, I was with my friends in Hungary after the wall fell and we were up on top of the Fishman's Walk in Buda, on the Buddha side of Budapest. And I said, what's wrong? And they said, we we understand the Romanians are going to invade us. And I said, I really don't think that's going to happen. But but they were waiting for the U.S., for Bush and, and Baker to congratulate them for finally realizing 40 years of American foreign policy. And the wall came down and they couldn't have cared less. If you go back and look at the clips of Bush and Baker talking about the end of the wall, it's that laconic sort of fake Texan thing that Bush had. And I thought, oh, my God, these poor people are being left to hang out to dry. That betrayal was terrible. And George Soros was the smartest guy on the planet because he moved in as a savior. And and that's one of the reasons he's been so very successful. 
Well, you pointed out a couple of things there. One is, is the left is very strategic and methodical in their planning. Unlike conservatives who are very tactical and, and their OODA loop is shorter than uh, Mickey Mouse, in my yeah, opinion. Yeah. But, but what's interesting there also is that the point you bring up, I think, is really critical for our listeners to understand in this battle between good and evil. So we talked about uh, Soros and good point on his strategic planning and also in terms of the color black and white with the old Soviet Union and our common experience there. Before we leave today, what I'd really like to have our listeners get a taste of is what what other books are you working on and what kind of messages are you looking to pass on here in terms of your next book? So oh, back over to you, sir. Sure. Well, the next book uh, under contract, and I'm just finishing it up now, is uh, a sequel to the book I mentioned earlier called Last Stands. And this one is called A Rage to Live, A Time to Die. And it's about ethical battles that change the course of history within the span of a day or sometimes just a few hours. So I'm looking at things like uh, Alexander the Great at Gaugamela when he defeats Darius for the third and last time, uh, looking at Caesar at Alicia, which is the battle that defeated Vercingetorix and destroyed the Celtic Gaulish society and allowed Rome to take over Gaul. Uh, the Milvian Bridge, which is the battle between Constantine and Maxentius that determined the fate of Christianity, which ultimately became the official religion of the Roman Empire. Uh, also, more modern battles, Midway, I think, is one of the great turning point battles in the history of any particular war, which the U.S. looked like it was really on its back Uh after Pearl Harbor, you know, having grown up in part in Hawaii, I used to live right above Pearl Harbor in yeah. Pearl City. So I saw it every day on my way to school. Uh, and yet, you know, in May, I guess it was of 42, we took the Japanese carrier fleet, and put it at the bottom of the Pacific Ocean in, in a day. And that was the end of the Japanese uh, expansion. And, and certainly they knew at that point the war was lost. At Yamamoto, I think, when he steamed back to Japan, knew that the, the game was up. And it didn't take us but five months to come back from a what should have been an absolute crippling blow. So that's that's another battle. And uh, I'm going to conclude with the battle of 9-11, which I believe is a turning point, negative so, so turning point in American history. For this next book here, what what's the top message, top line message you're trying to convey to the, the to the readers out there? That anything can happen if you don't give up. The U.S. could have gave up in 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 that midway, but Nimitz was a brilliant commander, and Roosevelt was determined to win that war. Uh, Osama bin Laden saw an opportunity to cripple America psychologically. Talk about you know the psychological aspects of warfare, and he did by destroying two major buildings in New York, attacking the Pentagon, and instead of us punishing him, we ended up going after Iraq, of all places. I mean, just the Bush family may be the stupidest family in politics, but that was <laughs> a, a new low in the history of American pusillanimity, and I just have nothing but contempt for it. Well, I, I really appreciate you joining us today, Mr. Walsh. You know, uh, it's been a, a true pleasure personally for me uh, to be able to speak to the author of The Devil's Pleasure Palace. And and I've, I've bought several of the other books and, and going through them now as well. Uh, as I close today, let me uh, let me say that 
Uh, Mr. Walsh's books are widely influential. The Devil's Pleasure Palace, as he said, the more positive, the fiery angel, which I'm going to be picking up and reading here shortly, examines the heroes, enemies, and triumphs and struggles of Western civilization from ancient past to present time. Each of these has tremendous lessons for uh, the, the listeners to, to take away and also gives you perseverance and persistence based on the history he brings to us to show that all is not lost. You just have to stand up. And, and as, as Michael wrote in The Last Dance, he speaks to the heroes of our world, including his father, as discussed today. He is also the auditor of, uh, editor of Against the Great Reset 2022. And we talked about his next book here. So for our audience, you can find more of Mr. Walsh's books on Amazon and the links we'll provide once this show goes to podcast. So thank you again, Michael. For our listeners, you can hear me on the National Security Hour and other military experts at 7 p.m. Eastern, Monday through Friday. I'll tell you what you need to hear, not what you want to hear. I'll go outside the fog of the daily chaos to give you a strategic perspective on national security issues and speak truth to power, the power of we the people. So we together can rest best ensure the resilience and security of our republic. Thanks for joining us on the mission. The National Security Hour is the tip of the spear in the epic battle to defend the United States of America. 